0: All right. <clears throat> well, why don't you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I want to provide a bit of a review and some context to what our objective is today. How many of you guys looked back at the genealogy and did your own research? Oh, a couple of you. Brave people. So was it was it invigorating? Invigorating? Okay. All right. Most people wouldn't say that about a genealogy. but So, yeah. All right, well... Uh, last week, in the genealogy, and you know, really the purpose for the genealogy was connecting Jesus to two very significant people. The first one being David, and then Abraham. And of course, the reason that, that Matthew is, is connecting Jesus to those men, because it's, it's essential to the argument that Jesus is the Messiah, heir to the throne of David, but it also has everything to do with the promises that were made to Abraham and his descendants and to David and one of his descendants. And according to Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah would be the one that ushers in, that makes all of these promises take place. And so the genealogy is very important. The promises that the Messiah would, would uh, usher in uh, concerning the land promises, the throne promises, and then the redemption of both ethnic Israel uh, and then, um, of course, Abraham, through Abraham, one of, his, one of his children, would then provide the blessing to the rest of the nations. And um, so, very important, we have to keep that in mind as we go through this. And as we said last week, the genealogy of Jesus is not sufficient in itself to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. It's just one portion of a series of arguments. Uh, all of them have to be put together. Uh, before we can uh, clearly, legitimately demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. But all of the Gospel of Matthew, from beginning to end, is what we call an apologetic. And when we say apologetic, we do not mean an apology for what the Bible teaches. Uh, It comes from the Greek apologia. It means to give a reasoned, a logical defense for something. And we have to do that, because we're looking at past historical events, uh, that have, of course, present and future implications. But as always, we want our apologetic to be uh, first honest and then winsome. Amen? Because you can be right in the wrong way. Right, guys? Men, we can be right in the wrong way. Yeah. So, yeah. Before I uh, read the text to you this morning, I wanted to turn back to verse 16 to uh, kind of help along uh, the establishment of Matthew's argument. The the text says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, in conclusion of Jesus' genealogy, Matthew does not say that Joseph begot Jesus. In fact, in the record of the genealogy, none of the women are said to beget anyone, for example, in verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. The men are always said to beget their sons by their wives. Okay, both here and then in verse 3 and in verse 6. But notice the difference in language between these verses and verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Who is it that begets Jesus? Mary, not Joseph. Okay? Matthew is very, uh, he's, he's trying to demonstrate the difference from the very beginning. He's not uh, trying to hide uh, this, the, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Je- Joseph is not. He's, 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 Matthew is coming out at the very beginning that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. He is only the legal father. He adopted Jesus. Okay. Mary is Jesus' biological mother, though. He was born of her. He was born of her. Now, as I mentioned at first service, this, there is this idea trending. Uh, and I, th- I think that, uh, of course, it comes out of um, some of our seminaries, but it seems like it, it, it picks up the most momentum among musicians, you know, people that are trendy among our youth. And then they come out, uh, and then they say things and they often say them in passing, but it, it has a great impact in our children. And one of those things is that um, the, the virgin birth that the Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, it's really not that important. You know, or you know, even if Jesus wasn't, uh, didn't come about by, by the by conception of the Holy Spirit, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, and I've heard the language, uh, well, my God is bigger than that, bigger than what he says. I mean, if God says that he did one thing but yet he did another thing, he is less than moral, and our God is first a moral God, amen? And, and so this, this idea that, well, my God is bigger than that. I mean, he didn't have to be, It didn't have to come about like that. No, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. Um, it absolutely did. Uh, another thing that I've heard that, that my God is bigger than that is regard to the resurrection. Let's say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Um, well, it's okay because my God is bigger than that. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that, no, actually, it is a big deal. Uh, not just because God said it, 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 predicted it in prophecy, and then performed it in history, uh, but it's actually necessary for our salvation, that Jesus was risen from the dead. But just as it, it's, it's necessary for salvation that Jesus rose from the dead, same too with his birth. Okay, we, we, it, Christian theology demands, uh, the gospel of Christ demands, that his mother conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we, we need him to be born that way. We need him to be born that way. All right, so with that said, with that in mind, go ahead and stand, and I'd like to read the Word of God to you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1. I'll start in verse 18. Uh, I need to get there myself. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... To him, his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired the human authors to guarantee to us that that what was passed down to us was without error. And Lord, we thank you for Matthew's apologetic concerning the Christian faith. And I would pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room that is not convinced, the identity of Christ as the scriptures teach. I pray that Matthew's reasonable defense as an eyewitness of the Christ, that they would come to faith fully in the Son of God. And for, Lord, for others who are coming along in their faith, I pray that this would solidify. As Peter says that through it, Lord, they would make their calling and their election sure and have full confidence in your word. So, Lord, thank you. Teach us, we pray, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. If you would return with me to verse 18, and I think I mentioned last week, I have the, the verses on the screen, not so you won't be responsible and bring your own Bible, but uh, we, I know that there are parents attending children, and as you're distracted with children, uh, I have four, so I know what it is to be distracted. You'll always know where we're at because the verses on the screen. Fair enough? If you don't like the verses on the screen, Don't look at it, (laughs) okay? Don't look at it. So Matthew begins with the statement, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, was as follows. Now, because Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, the facts concerning his birth needed to be put in order. Imagine being in Joseph's situation. The facts need to be put in order. An explanation needs to be given, not just for him, but for a number of other people. Of course, initially for Joseph, because his wife was pregnant without his contribution. So there was some explaining, right, needed to happen. At the time that he discovered she was pregnant, he had not touched her. Okay, They were still in what is called the betrothal period. An explanation was also necessary for the Jewish people who were living in Nazareth where Joseph and Mary lived. But the facts should also be important to future generations of Jews who might consider Jesus as their Messiah, especially those familiar with biblical prophecy about the Messiah. But it needs to be cleared up that Jesus is not the child of fornication. That has to be cleared up, especially in the Jewish mind. Okay? So Matthew sets out to give an account of the historical facts uh, by the way, a fact which he defended to his death. Yeah. Notice that in verse 1, and here, Matthew, uh, to begin with, he does not shy away from referring to, to Jesus as the Christ. Okay, the, That he is the Messiah is the whole point of all of this. But if you're going to refer to someone, uh, especially to a Jew, that this person is the Messiah, you better have your facts in order. You better. Okay. So... From chapter 1 to chapter 28, it's the ordering. It's the relaying of the facts. And all of the facts begin with a very serious problem, especially in first century Jewish society. We have a big problem, okay? Now, during the betrothal period, it became uh, known to Joseph that Mary was pregnant. Now, the first mistake we make in the culture that we live in, is that we think that the betrothal period was essentially the same as an engagement as it is today. We make that mistake. So whenever we interpret the Scriptures, we've said this many times, you cannot take uh, cultural ideas of our culture and then impose them on the Scriptures. If If you do that, you'll either misinterpret the text or you'll miss the gravity of the text. You got it? Okay. The second mistake we make is that we think the social ramifications... Of their day will be somewhat like they are in our culture when someone gets pregnant before marriage or even during the engagement period by someone other than their fiance. What was true here and now, or what is true here and now, was not the case then. So let me talk about the betrothal for a minute. So in Western culture, an engagement is a mutual agreement between a man and a woman to be married, right? Okay. Sexual purity is implied if not explicitly stated. But in Israel, in the first century, this engagement period called betrothal was not simply a mutual agreement. This is a full-on legal arrangement according to the law of God, according to the law of Moses, the very thing that governed Jewish society. Okay? In the, according to the law, those who are betrothed to one another, they are husband and they are wife. Mary was Joseph's wife. and a little bit, it, Joseph is called the husband of Mary, and they are not sealed by covenant yet. They are sealed by an agreement. According to Deuteronomy 22, if you want the reference in the law, verse 23 through 24, a betrothed woman in the law is called the wife of the one she's promised to. Now, according to ancient custom, for various reasons, The betrothal period lasted about a year, but during that time, the couple could not live together, they could not be alone together, and they were never allowed to touch one another. Never, okay? Especially sexually. And if either person had sex with someone other than their betrothed, guess what it was considered? It was adultery. And according to the law, the penalty for adultery is what? It's a capital offense. It's a capital offense. Our text says that before Joseph and Mary came together, that is, before they came together and had sex, Mary was found to be pregnant. And at this point, uh, when Joseph found out, there's no hiding the reality. By the time he found out, she was showing. She was showing. So by all appearances, Mary was an adulterous woman. She had broken God's law. She violated her betrothal. She dishonored her parents, and she had brought shame upon her family's name. Her father even is at great risk in the community and socially, okay? Because the fact is he was unable to keep his daughter pure throughout the betrothal period. Understand, he had received dowry for Mary, either from Joseph or from Joseph's father. That was the legal agreement that Mary is promised to Joseph and that he as the father would keep her chaste during that time. He would preserve her her purity until the covenant was made. That's a problem. If Mary had sisters, it is now very difficult for the father to find husbands for them because he is considered in the community to be untrustworthy. His reputation is wrecked. And of course, Mary is now in potential grave danger depending on what Joseph does. Now, the text, of course, immediately preserves Mary's moral reputation. She is pregnant, not by fornication, but by the Holy Spirit. It's just that Joseph does not know that yet. Okay? Uh, and this is... Uh, she, of course, is the first to find out. Let me read uh, again to you what Gabriel the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. He said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, I have a question. (laughs) That was my personal translation. She says, how can this be? Since I do not know a man, meaning sexually, she's a virgin, and the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1:30 30 through 35. So Mary, according to the angel, was a virgin, and she would remain a virgin until she delivered Jesus. It's important. Jesus was not the child of fornication, but of miraculous conception. So Mary is promised she'll she'll conceive without the help of a man. Of course, the problem is who will believe her, especially Joseph. So Joseph then, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now the passage presents, I think for some traditional people, an interesting dilemma. Again, notice that he is called Mary's husband just through betrothal, Not simply her betrothed or fiancé, he's the legal husband, according to Deuteronomy. And his wife, as far as he knows, has been sexually immoral. That's what Joseph thinks at this point. So he's at his own dilemma. The phrase, to put her away, most definitely means divorce. And according to the law, divorce was required to dissolve this particular relationship. Alright, so I'm going to ask a question, but I don't want any of you to answer out loud. Did everybody hear me? I'm going to ask a question. I do not want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it, okay? Uh, I fully expected someone in first service to shout an answer out because I know some of the personalities in first service. Nobody did. Here's the question. This is the dilemma. Under the circumstances, by what Joseph knows at this point, could he or another man be just? That is, can he be a righteous man by divorcing his wife? I ask the question because I know the diversity of people in our church and the denominations that you've come from, traditions. Okay? Um, and some of you may have some very strong views about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Okay? Um, we're going to talk a lot about it later. Okay? But for now, um, I'm going to agree with the text and say yes. Yes seeing that Matthew is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is providing this moral estimation of Joseph's character in light of what he is considering. The Holy Spirit is saying that by the knowledge that Joseph has, he would be acting consistent with what is righteous by divorcing Mary in secret. You understand? This is not Matthew's evaluation of Joseph. This is the Holy Spirit's. Now, he doesn't have to divorce her. But he could and still be consistent with what is just. Okay? Joseph actually has the legal right to remain married or divorce her. But there's nothing in the law that requires him to make a stink over what Mary has done or what he thinks Mary has done. Nothing in the law requires that. Okay? She's in enough trouble with her family, with society, with the law of God and everything else if she is indeed lying. Okay? And she would by no means escape death just because Joseph uh, divorced her quietly. When we get to Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 19, that's where I'll give a full exegesis of the scriptures on divorce and remarriage after divorce. Think you guys can hold on that long? Okay, it'll be fun times. All right, all right, for now, we are going to grant that a spouse can act justly by divorcing their spouse for sexual morality. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's nice to corroborate her story. Amen? For Joseph? Yeah. So the angel tells him, notice the language, it's interesting, don't be afraid. That is, don't be terrified to take Mary as your wife. And what he means is, don't be afraid to consummate the marriage with a covenant. Now again, some church traditions, which is very strange to me, believe that a marriage is consummated by intercourse. You've probably heard that. Oh, they they consummated their marriage. What? Do you have a Bible verse for that? Biblically, a marriage is consummated by a covenant. A covenant. When you give your word to someone else in a covenant agreement. So you're saying that none of it's valid until you have sex? That's... Ridiculous. Okay? That's ridiculous. In the scriptures, marriages are consummated by the covenant at the altar, if you will. Okay? So why would Joseph be afraid to continue on with making a covenant with Mary? Well, first, the statement seems to imply that Joseph still wanted to be married to Mary. I think there's every indication in the implications here, the language, that Joseph loved Mary. In, in spite of what's happened and what he doesn't know, okay? He's wrestling with what to do. Now, most men in that circumstance would not wrestle. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. She may have tried to explain, but what an unbelievable story. And it would be blasphemous to blame God for her pregnancy, if indeed she was lying. It's a, it's a blasphemous accusation. And she wasn't making any accusations of rape, which would have delivered her from any moral crime. According to the law, she, it could have gone down like this, that she was outside the city, away from others. A stranger took advantage of her. She cried out for help, but there was no one to save her. In the law of God, she would be delivered from all moral ramifications completely. But she's not saying that she was raped. Okay? Rape would have been a believable story. But by denying rape, she's incriminating herself. She appears to be a liar, a blasphemer, and sexually immoral. Okay? Nothing for Joseph was making sense, but he loved her. He's wrestling with it, and he's afraid. He's afraid. He was afraid because of the religious and the social consequences. What would it look like to his family, to his friends and his community, if he went through with marrying a woman who was pregnant by someone else? Would he be respectable? One of the questions that I I think it's haunting to us to think about or, or crazy is would he be employable? Would he be employable? Would he be able to continue living in Israel? And then there would be the issue of raising a child of fornication and a child that was not his own. Could he live with Mary's story, her lies? Could he ever trust her again? Imagine all that Joseph is going through But then after wrestling with what to do, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and he confirms Mary's story. Confirms it. Now, I think that's very nice for Joseph. He now knows that she conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. What a relief to him. But there's more to what the angel says. He says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, or as we talked about last week, Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. Okay for or because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's born. He will be called according to his mission. But there's something, excuse me, that's important to point out, and that's the difference between what the angel tells Mary and what the angel tells Joseph. Now, between the two stories, here in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, the gender and the name is the same. But there's an addition to the child's mission here. The angel told Mary about the child's political future, that the Lord God would give him his father David's throne from which he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. You see, Gabriel told Mary that her son would be a political figure. A political figure. But in Matthew, the angel tells Joseph about the spiritual mission of Jesus. He's going to save his people. So Joseph was told that Jesus would be a spiritual figure. Political and spiritual. Wouldn't that be nice? if they could come together in the right way. Both are true, okay? Both are true. Uh, But the difference is, Joseph was informed about Jesus' mission during his first coming. Gabriel told Mary about his second coming, according to prophecy. At his first coming, Jesus became a sacrifice on Calvary. But in his second coming, Isaiah 63, Revelation chapter 19, he comes with a sword and he reigns from Zion. Both are found in prophecy. Now, there are people who, when they read the words of Gabriel to Mary, they say that Gabriel there is not being literal. He's, being, he's, he's speaking an allegory about Jesus. Okay. Well, I guarantee you that when Mary heard those words, she wasn't thinking the angel was saying something different than what he said. It's a very strange interpretation. Okay. She received those words from him, and she goes, okay. That confirmed, actually, everything that she had understood about Messiah from the Old Testament. There was no conflict with that. Okay, she, she, she took him literally. literally. She understood that Jesus would sit on the literal throne of David that would once, once again be established in Jerusalem and that Jesus would reign over the ethnic descendants of Jacob, not in heaven, but here on earth. Okay? She wasn't thinking to herself, he must mean something else. The angel spoke literally to her as he did to Mary. They just, the two things, they're fulfilled at two different times. Now what is interesting is that the message that the angel comes to Joseph with is the, the spiritual mission of Jesus rather than his political mission. Because at the time of Joseph, in the, the first uh, part of the first century, uh, the Jews just had no place in their theology for a Messiah who would suffer. Nothing. Old Testament prophecies that describe the suffering, the atoning death of Messiah, like Psalm 22, describing his crucifixion, Isaiah 53 talking about the reason for his conviction. The the Jewish scholars at that time, of Joseph's time, they pushed all of that aside. And the only thing that they would consider were prophecies like Isaiah 63, where the Messiah comes back, he, he takes out his sword, and he annihilates all of his enemies. That's the only thing they could see. Other prophecies like Isaiah 11, uh, Ezekiel's filled with them, along with Daniel and Zechariah. All these prophecies about Messiah and his kingdom. You see, the Jews of of Jesus' day, they could not see both stages of the mission. Uh, They couldn't divide them because for them, Messiah just meant the death of the Romans. And this is what happens. And this has happened many times in history. Our circumstances interpret scripture for us. So because they were under so much persecution, oppression, and the tyranny of Rome, they naturally gravitated to the text of prophecy that talked about Jesus, or the Messiah, rather, destroying them, and then reestablishing prosperity among the Jews, re-erecting the throne of David, and, uh, and bringing peace to their land. They couldn't see both, couldn't see both. Now, I think it's worth pointing out, I think it's, it's honest, but it's also fascinating. In some of the the very, very, of the earliest Jewish writings, a a minority of Jews believed that Messiah would have two different comings, two different advents, or that there was two different Messiahs. You get it? So in their intellectual honesty, they were looking at all of this prophecy from the Old Testament, and they're, they're saying, this text about the Messiah's suffering is undeniable. But it's the same with these other passages like Isaiah 63. So how do, we, how do we reconcile this? How do we account for this? So they said, well, maybe he comes a first time and does one part of his mission. Maybe he comes a second time and fulfills the other. Or maybe there's one Messiah that does this part and another Messiah that does that part. I mean, I at least appreciate that they were wrestling with it rather than saying, no, I don't like these because they don't fit in my context, so let's get rid of them. So they were wrestling with all of that. Now, when you, it's, it is very interesting as you look at Old Testament prophecy, and, and it is, it's, it's, a, it's a whole paragraph, and part of the paragraph is dedicated to what Jesus would accomplish in his first coming, and then the other portion talks about his second coming, and, and they oftentimes are just divided by a comma. There's a lot of space between, by that comma, isn't there? Okay. Uh, Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Perhaps you remember the story. I don't want to spoil it because I want to talk about it later. But he opens the scroll, and he begins to read, and then he stops, and he says that what I've read to you is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he rolls the scroll up, he gives it back to the attendant of the synagogue. And, um, but the question is, what follows the comma? You can't do that. We'll find out when we get there. Reconciling, all that stuff. The thing is, is that the Jews that held this, this position of two comings or two messiahs, they were beyond the minority, okay? And nobody uh, that was considered of any repute would tolerate uh, that position during the day of Christ. Everybody uh, focused on just this political figure as Messiah. If you're interested in a book that uh, organizes all of the ancient literature regarding the ancient Jews' view of Messiah, it's, it's a book by Dr. Uh, Mark Eastman called Search for the Messiah. It's a great read, uh, but we got to got to move on here. Verse 22. So he says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. I want to point out that this is the first time that Matthew uses the word fulfilled. He's going to use it a ton of times in the book of Matthew, and this is where the, the apologetic becomes the strongest in, uh, in the book of Matthew. He is saying that things were talked about years and years ago by the prophets that are being fulfilled now in the person of Jesus. So we need to pay attention to the word and to its context. Okay. Um, the word fulfill means to perform completely, to accomplish something in its entirety. So what he's saying is Mary, a virgin conceived by way of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill, in order to accomplish in its entirety that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So miraculous conception in the Virgin Mary was not some random or recent move by the Holy Spirit in the first century. This was planned by God in advance and it was pronounced okay, through the prophet some 700 years earlier when God spoke through Isaiah, saying this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Good stuff right there. I think that people hear this stuff so often that they lose the gravity of, of pre-science, of, of history uh, proclaimed in advance. God declaring the end of time from the beginning. We just don't do that. This is amazing stuff. Okay. And as we look through the Old Testament and we look through the life of Jesus, this happens over 300 times. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. So if there is another Messiah out there, he's going to have to do really good, okay? Really good. This all happened to Mary in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, planned and pronounced in advance. Now, it is important because um, whenever the scriptures say anything, there's always a controversy about something. Some people get all excited about this prophecy. Uh, Some people get worried about it and say that the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 that is translated virgin is incorrect. Incorrect. They say it should be translated as young woman. My question is, should it be? As early as the third century B.C., when the Jews translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language, they translated this Hebrew word into Greek as parthenos. Parthenos. Well, that's interesting because the word parthenos in Greek is completely unambiguous. You know what it means? Virgin. Virgin. And only virgin, okay? Why would those men whose first language was Hebrew translate their Hebrew term into an unambiguous Greek term? Virgin, yeah. And why would Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use the unambiguous term Parthenos if God meant something else in Isaiah? Because God inspired Isaiah as much as he did Matthew. It's interesting to consider. Also, if the original Hebrew should be translated as young woman, The introduction to the prophecy back in Isaiah is complete nonsense. Let's look at it. Here's the whole text. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is a sign? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a miracle, one that will prove that my hand is involved in all this. Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Is there a miracle in that? How about this? The Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's a little different, isn't it? Yeah. There is no sign. Nothing is significant. No miracle about a young woman conceiving or giving birth. There's nothing impressive about that. Not at Calvary Chapel. Okay? (laughs) If you haven't been here first service, just try it out sometime. I bet there's 150 children. Okay? If a virgin is not meant here, the Lord himself did not give a sign. Did not give a sign. Young women conceiving and having babies. I mean, it's a big deal. But it's not as big as a virgin conceiving and having babies. Okay. Yeah. We don't see virgins doing that. If we did, what do you think we would think? I mean, if we could confirm that they were a virgin, we would think, this is miraculous. Spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation. Amazing. But when young ladies have babies, it just seems to be the norm. Amen? Yeah. So God, in the text, he's talking about Mary, a virgin, who would conceive miraculously and give birth to a son. Let's go back to Matthew. The text says that the child will be named Emmanuel, which in Hebrew uh, means God with us. Now, nobody disputes the translation of Emmanuel, Okay, God with us. Now, in the scriptures, quite often, a name often refers to someone's character or their nature, as it does here, and not necessarily the name that they would be called by. Okay? Jesus did not go by the name Emmanuel. He was Emmanuel. Jesus was God with us, God in the flesh. Okay? Now, this reality is actually found everywhere in the scriptures throughout the New Testament. It's undeniable. Okay? Undeniable. Now, I realize that there are people who do not believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. But there's one thing that they cannot intelligently do is say that the Bible does not teach it. So I want you to pay attention, okay? Pay attention. In Mark 1.1, Jesus is immediately called the Son of God. Now, a son is the same substance as his father. Is that true? Or do we give birth to frogs? And things. A child is of the same substance as their parent. Jesus is said to be the Son of God and so God begot God by Mary. That is the only intelligent way to interpret that text. But Mary is also the mother of Jesus. So Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature. He is the God-man. He's not half God and half man. Okay, that's a, mis- a mistake of an early heresy in the church. He is fully God, and he is fully man. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus is called the Son of the Highest. The Son of the Highest. The same as saying he's the Son of God. It's a reference to his deity. In John 1, 1, the eternal word, John says, was God. And then in verse 14, he says the word became flesh, meaning a man. In Acts 20, 28, he is the God who shed his blood for the church. Acts 20, verse 20, he is the God who shed his blood for the church. In Romans 9, 5, Jesus is said to be the eternally blessed God. So there you don't just have a designation of his deity, but his eternality, which is required to be God. Ephesians 1, 20, he sits to the right hand of God the Father, and it says that Jesus himself fills all in all. Now that's only a reality that God can fill. Only God can do that. In Philippians 2:6 he is said to be equal with God. Colossians 1:16 through 17 says that he is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews 1 says that he created all things and he keeps it in existence. Without him it cannot exist. Okay? That is a powerful statement. In Colossians 2:9 it says all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ Jesus. Now the word there in the Greek is deity. It's not as some translations say, Godhead. Godhead is a confusing term. Deity is the real term there. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Jesus is the king eternal, immortal, the only wise God, to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. Look at that. He's the, the king eternal. He's immortal, the only wise God, to whom belongs honor and glory. He is the object of our obedience, our worship. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he is God manifested in the flesh. In 2 Timothy 4.1, he is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus 2.13, he is our great God and Savior. I think I mentioned it to Second Service last week. Great God is not one person and Savior another person. There is a Greek rule of grammar here that is consistent throughout Greek literature. It doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or outside the Bible. It, it requires that those are all the same person. You can look it up. It's called the Granville Sharp's rule. There's is, there is no exceptions to that rule. None. Jesus is our great God and our savior. In Hebrews 1:3 it says that he's the exact representation of God's nature. Later on, God the Father refers to Jesus as God, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. And then in verse 6 it says that Jesus is the object of angelic praise and worship. I'll tell you what, there's only one deity that the angels of heaven will worship, right? Because last time they messed around with that whole thing, what happened? Didn't go well, okay? Jesus is the object of their worship. They worship Jesus at his feet. In 2 Peter 1.1, uh, same Granville Sharp's rule, Peter says Jesus is our God and Savior. He is our God and Savior. And in Revelation 1.8, This cannot be confusing to anyone. If you have a red-letter Bible, this would be in red. I tried to get it up there. I just, I'm not good with technology. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, either that is the most arrogant statement in the universe, or Jesus is as the rest of Scripture says he is. I am the Almighty. So Jesus did not go by the name Emmanuel, but he was Emmanuel. He was God with us who dwelt among us. Okay, so what do you do now, Joseph? Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Okay, do you think he did it gladly? I think for two reasons. There's privilege here, right? To have the Son of God born into your family. That's kind of big. <laughs> but he loved Mary. He wanted this to work out. Okay. So at the end of the betrothal period, about a year, Jesus, not Jesus, Joseph took to himself his wife, and he did that by covenant. Now, because of Luke's Gospel, we know that Mary, by this time, was very, very pregnant. Okay. Very pregnant. By the time they sealed the covenant. In fact, Mary was probably more than four months along. She, could have, she was at least that far along. She was maybe even further along. We know that after she found out that she had conceived, she went to Judea in the south to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with who? With John the Baptist. You guys are amazing. Yeah. And Mary stayed there for three months. Now, Joseph probably discovered that she was pregnant when she came back. And even under all of that Middle Eastern clothing, uh, Mary looked different. Okay? She looked different. But the angel intervened, so G- Joseph took Mary to be his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Yeshua, Jesus. Now, I understand that when I read that passage uh, out loud from the pulpit, that for some of you, it's probably controversial. It's probably controversial, uh, not because we've read it in the text, but because of various traditions in church history regarding Mary's, Mary's perpetual virginity. Okay, but I have to say this: if you had no knowledge of tradition, imagine if you knew nothing about church tradition, and you were reading this passage for the first time, you would understand the passage according to its normal sense. And you would say, oh, they didn't have sex until after Jesus was born. That would be your affirmation. That's the affirmation of the text. Okay? You would say that because you would have no tradition to read into the text to contradict the plain meaning of the passage. Okay? And, and that's the way we should read the passage this morning. Now, I, I realize that the word until does not always mean the beginning of something new. But the plain reading of the text is king. You get it? The plain reading of the text is king. Right? The phrase, did not know her, means that Joseph did not have sex with Mary. But The language, the natural sense of the passage, indicate that Joseph and Mary did not have intercourse until after Jesus was delivered. Now, according to Jewish law, uh, she had to go through her 40 days of purification uh, before they could have intercourse. But the text is clearly implying that they did have sex afterwards. Now, I say that not because I want to be controversial, um, I, I, I believe what the text says, and I believe the rest of the arguments I'm going to give, but if you come from that tradition, if you hold to that tradition, I'm not trying to be insensitive to you, okay? But you are here at Calvary Chapel, and I am going to teach the text that is in front of you, and if I feel the need, I'm going to defend it from other places of Scripture. And that, I'm going to do that. I'm going to continue to do that, okay? this is that they had uh, sex afterwards is also supported by the fact that Mary had other children and that Jesus was merely her firstborn. Now some manuscripts do not say firstborn in verse 25 of Matthew 1 but every single one of them say it in Luke 2 7. Jesus was the firstborn among many others and we'll look at all of his siblings later on. It's important to note that the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin is never taught in the scriptures. It's never even implied. Okay, Not a perpetual virginity. Something else that has always intrigued me about this is why. What necessitates that she be a virgin her whole life? Why is that important if she's married? Why is that important? Also, it puts Joseph and Mary in contradiction to some biblical mandates regarding sex in the marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So they live the rest of their life married disobedient? That is very strange. Those who advance the teaching that Mary remained a virgin perpetually, they're the ones that bear the burden of proving it. And the great challenge that they face is there is no biblical evidence for such an idea. Okay? And it's not even a, a very early tradition in the church. Now, I don't believe that all of their arguments are even worth addressing because they're therefore arguments. Well, her womb is holy because Jesus was in it, therefore. Who, says, who, who in the Scripture says that her womb was holy? Now it says the Holy One in her womb. Okay? That's what the Scriptures say. Now, the doctrine comes from ascetic monks who held a low view of both marriage and sex contrary to the Bible. That's where it came from. They essentially viewed sex as a necessary evil to fulfill the procreation mandate. But that is not what we find in Scripture. Not in Genesis, not in Proverbs. How many of you guys have read Song of Solomon? Definitely not in Song of Solomon. Not in 1 Corinthians 7. In the context of marriage, sex is both holy and beautiful. And we have to understand that it was given before the fall. It was given before sin invaded our world. God gave it to us to enjoy, okay, for it to be holy within the confines of marriage. Okay? Also, as the scriptures teach, that within the confines of marriage sex cannot defile so mary had nothing to worry about in the marriage sex cannot defile okay even if your mother if you're the mother of jesus the author of hebrews says marriage is honorable among all at least it should be it should be and the bed the marriage bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers god will judge the truth of the matter is this joseph was blessed to have a number of biological children of his own with Mary, okay, with Mary. Now, I don't think that Joseph was hoping that we would get into a dispute over Mary's perpetual virginity, and I don't don't want to get into tons and tons and tons of it uh, because I think the point that Matthew is trying to make in his apologetic is that Jesus is the physical relative of Abraham and David. He is a candidate for Messiah, But when it comes to the story of his birth, now he's indisputably the Messiah. And as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, he is God Almighty in the flesh. That is the most essential part of Matthew's argument this morning. Now, if you are here this morning and you you haven't heard, perhaps, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God Almighty, uh, you heard it this morning. Okay, from multiple passages. The, the apostles of Jesus and Jesus himself clearly believed. I can't wait to get to the end of Matthew with you when he, I mean, the high priest loses his mind over what Jesus claims to be. And it's not ambiguous. I mean, he quotes Daniel, okay? But without Jesus being the Messiah of prophecy, without him being the son of God, God in the flesh, there is no salvation for mankind. Okay, if, if, if Joseph was his father, and therefore there was no virgin birth, Jesus would be contaminated by sin. And then he could not save himself, and he could save no one else. We need the virgin birth, and we need the deity of Christ. Okay, Only the judge, in our context, as we'll get into, can pay the penalty for those who sinned against him. Because if you have to do it, you'll do it in eternity away from him. Okay, But Christ came as the God-man, To bear all of our sin and all of our guilt in his body, Peter says. And then he went to the cross and he suffered for everything, every wicked thing that I've ever done, everything that you've ever done. So that those who trust in him, Paul says that his, Jesus' righteousness, his purity, his innocence is then transferred to you. He takes our sin, we receive his righteousness. That's the gospel. If he is not who Matthew says he is, he cannot do any of those things. All right, go ahead and stand up with me. And we'll pray. If you have any questions about what I've talked about this morning, I'd love to to chat with you. We're going to end with some worship. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as so many great confessions of faith throughout our history has been that the Bible is the final rule for what we believe and how we ought to behave. And, Lord, your word today, Matthew, has shared with us what it is we ought to believe, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. Lord, if you are not all of those things, you can be nothing to us. But if you are all of those things, Lord, you deserve all of the honor and the glory. You deserve our obedience and our loyalty, our love. So, Lord, I just pray that everybody in here, Lord, would consider deeply what we've talked about. Because if it's true, it's the most important thing in all of our lives. So help us, we pray. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.